Growing up in the Cavett household, we did a lot of projects. In January of 2007, we moved from Jacksboro uh, to Amarillo. Uh, my dad was um, going from uh, a job as the director of parks and recreation to a uh, position as a recreation and activities minister at Paramount Baptist, uh, which I count as one of my home churches, uh, Live Oak Baptist in Amarillo. In, uh, Jacksboro would be the other. When we moved to Amarillo, we immediately uh, set about the task of improving the house. Well, my parents bought a little bit of a fixer-upper. So the very first thing uh, we did, um, the uh, fence of this house that we bought, uh, bad shape, falling apart, uh, entire uh, slats were missing, there was a couple posts that were broken, and entire panels of fence Uh, Six foot or longer pieces were almost completely gone. It desperately needed to be repaired. But like I said, uh, it was January. So, and this is the part of Texas that gets this stuff called snow. And a lot of it. So, Lowe's delivers our big pallet of wooden fence slats. And guess what we get a couple days later? A nice four inch or so blanket. Which of course didn't stay snow, it melted, and we were working in mud. So that was fun. And a couple months later, I think, uh, my granddad came up to uh, Amarillo and helped us uh, redo the floor. We laid a bunch of tile throughout the house. I was less of a fan than that than I was with um, the fence. At least you got to do a nail gun when you were working outside on the fence. As the years went on, we would do more and more things. We did raised garden beds and, and some other stuff around the backyard. We would paint and um, help my dad with other such repairs. But as my brother Austin and I, he's, Austin is my closest brother. I'm a year and a half older. As we got into high school and college, we started doing more and more projects on our own. Okay? Um, of course, we didn't have our own tools. We were, we were borrowing my dad's. Um, and this eventually uh, caused a consistent problem. Uh, There was a certain tool that kept ending up where my dad didn't want it. Um, And it was a rather important tool. It was his tape measure. Some of you who have kids, uh, or particularly the male kind who like to maybe build things, you can maybe relate. So sometimes in high school or college, I would get a text from my mom. It was like, hey, your dad's got a project. He's looking for the tape measure. Where is it? I don't know. The dad would holler at me from the, from the other side of the house. It was like, are you the last one to use the tape measure? Nope. Chris, where is it? Ask Austin. Wasn't me. You know how siblings do. What was so important about this particular tool? What's so great about a tape measure? Well, for anyone who's ever tried to build something, you understand pretty simply. If you want what you build to stand, if you want what you build to have any uh, ability to, to hold together and to last and to serve its intended purpose, if you want to build it correctly and build it well, you need good measurements. You need to know, you need to have the right standard to know what you have so you know how then to put it together. This is, in a sense, what Paul is addressing here in this text. As it is with uh, construction, so it also is with the church. 
and with the Christian life. We need the right measurements in order to, one, build correctly, whether it's the church or our own lives, our own hearts, and we need the right measurements in order to serve our intended purposes, both as individual Christians and together as the church. So as with constructing a building, so also in the church and in the life of a disciple of Christ. If you use the wrong measurement, don't be surprised if you get a rickety, useless building. You should also not be surprised if you get a shaky, unfaithful church and shaky, unfaithful Christians. So here's kind of the roadmap where we're going with this sermon today. I want to see first what these critics got wrong about Paul. We're going to see why they got it wrong. We're going to see how Paul corrects them. We're going to see the correct standard of measurement that he provides. And we're going to see him demonstrate the effects of that correct measurement. So what did they get wrong about Paul? We've already read the text, so let me point out a few things to you. There are many kind of accusations against Paul. Some are direct and others are a little bit more subtle. They're kind of implied. So let's go through uh, them together. Here's five. Beginning of verse eight. The accusation is essentially, he boasts too much in his own authority. This Paul guy, why, why does he think he has all this authority? Why is he here bossing us around? He thinks he's something special. He thinks he's something great. He's boasting in his own authority. The end of verse 8 says he's trying to tear us down. He's not looking out for our own good. He's trying to destroy us. Verse 10, he only packs a punch when he isn't here. Presbyterian preacher Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. Um, When he's here, he's a teddy bear. When he's away, he's a grizzly. The end of verse 10, they simply just say that he's a bad speaker. He's not impressive. He's not eloquent. Verse 15, it's kind of implied that he takes credit for other people's work. He boasts. He tears us down. He's inconsistent with when he's really like trying to force it when he's packing a punch. He's, he's, a, he's a poorly skilled, bad speaker, and he takes credit for other people, another, for other people's work. And in other words, in total, here's what they are getting wrong about Paul. They are saying he doesn't measure up, and you shouldn't listen to him. He doesn't measure up, and, you, and he shouldn't be listened to. This is what they get wrong. Why did they get this wrong? Because they're using the wrong tools to measure Paul. Just like you don't, uh, as a, I guess this is, this is more of a, maybe this is a Texan thing, this is what comes to mind. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You don't measure uh, the length of something with a scale. And you don't measure the success of an apostle by worldly standards. This is their critical error. They're not asking, is this the correct measurement of apostles, the church, or the Christians in general? Okay, they, they think, uh, for example, about his uh, speech. They consider particularly his weak, the accusation of his weak presence and his poor speaking. Well, what is their measurement for strong presence and excellent speech? The end of verse 12 tells us their standard is each other. They compare themselves to one another. 
They're also probably bringing in more of a, uh, the tradition of Greek rhetoric. The, the Greeks were kind of the first ones to really invent like persuasive speaking, and that has much uh, influence on how we evaluate uh, public speaking today in America. They're evaluating him by these standards that come from the world. They're comparing him to, a, to other people, and they're comparing him by uh, the Greek standard of great speech. I'm not saying that it's necessarily bad for pastors, preachers, or even Christians in general to be able to speak well. That actually kind of should be an expectation of pastors that they try to grow in skill as a speaker, as a preacher. But that shouldn't be the final standard. And that's the mistake that they are making here. They are saying the final standard, the full assessment, the true measurement of Paul's success is whether or not he meets the standards of men. So, this is their error. They're not asking, is this the correct measurement of Paul as an apostle? Is it the correct measurement of the church or is it the correct measurement of Christians in general? Paul's response to this is like, No, this is not the right measurement. Look at the end of uh, verse 12. He says, not that we we dare classify or compare ourselves, excuse me, uh, with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. These standards are senseless, they're silly, they're foolish. Comparing yourself to other men is foolish. It's silliness. It's not a good standard. Certainly not in the church. So there's what they get wrong, why they get it wrong. It's the wrong standard, wrong measurement. What is Paul's correction? This is where we'll kind of hunker down and spend some time. What is Paul's correct measurement? What is the measure of success for him? Look at the end, verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. It is the Lord's commendation that matters. It is his approval that matters most, not Commending ourselves, not coming up with our own standard to say, look at me, I have this, therefore I should be accepted, therefore I'm good enough. And it's not comparing to other people and saying, I measure up as compared to them, or I'm better than them, or they are holding this standard and I meet that, so therefore I'm good, or I'm acceptable. They're commending me, and that's the final say. That's not it. It is the Lord's commendation that Paul is after. So what effect does this have on Paul's ministry? We can look at the responses that Paul gives to to the criticisms. So we looked at five of those criticisms a second ago. Here's essentially what he says in response. Verse 8, when they accuse him of, of boasting too much in his own authority, his reply is, I'm not boasting too much in our authority. It's not our authority. It came from Christ, not us. Christ's approval fuels his righteous boldness. It's not coming from anything within himself. 
Also in verse 8, when they criticize him and, and try to say, he's trying to tear you down, Corinthian church, he's trying to tear you down. Paul's response is, no, I'm not trying to tear you down. I am trying to build you up, not destroy you. Christ's approval enables self-sacrifice and helpfulness to others. Verse 11, when they accuse him of being inconsistent, they say he's different in person and away. He's a teddy bear when he's here. He's a grizzly when he's away. He says, no, we are the same in person and away. I'm using different tactics to address these issues with you. Because remember, this is actually, likely scholars believe, the third letter that Paul has sent to the Corinthian church. Um, it's kind of broadly understood, speaking of like all the different churches that uh, Paul works with. Hey, can we try to kill this mic? I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Thanks, Dale. Um, of all the churches that Paul has planted, we talk about Philippi, um, uh, Ephesus, Galatia, which is actually a collection of a lot, of, a lot of churches. Corinth is known as kind of his problem child, as it were. This is the one that has a lot of the issues, which is maybe one reason why they're getting so many letters. And eventually, when you have a recurring problem with maybe an employee or a child or someone, do you keep using the same tactic over and over to address the problem? No. Sometimes you change tone, you maybe change tactics in order to have success in addressing the issue. That's what Paul's doing here. He has, he's saying, we are the same in person in a way. The motivations, the heart, the intentions, it's all the same. Christ's approval motivates integrity. And the appropriate use of different Corrective tactics as needed. Look at verse 12. He said, when they say that uh, his, his speech is of no account, he's a bad speaker. He says, well, the worth of my speech isn't determined by your standard. Christ's approval doesn't depend on skill or talent. Thank goodness for that. Verse 14 the, the accusation is that he's taking credit for other people's work. He says, no, we were the first ones to get here. We're not taking credit for others. We started the work first. And while we're on that topic, you know what we're actually trying to do? We're not trying to, this is Paul speaking, in his words I'm paraphrasing, we're not trying to just stay here and camp out and like rest on our laurels and just say, hey, Corinthian church, it was like, you guys know that we were here first and we love you guys and we're just going to stay here. We're going to spend all this time with you and let you love on us because y'all know how good we are and all this time and effort that we poured into you. No, what does Paul say is his intention? He wants them to grow in faith so that he can leave and go somewhere else and start the whole process of planting a church all over again and potentially deal with more critics, more hardship. This is incredible coming from a guy like Paul. You would think that eventually he would get sick of people trying to kill him, get sick of traveling around the world just to get yelled at and stoned and accosted in the city streets and shipwrecked and bitten by snakes and all the other things? Nope. 
Christ's approval draws focus to earnest kingdom work. So the two kind of areas that this affects. We've seen the problem. We've seen um, the phrase I used. Um, we see what they got wrong about Paul. See why they got it wrong. Here's Paul's correction, kind of case by case, one by one. He answers their criticisms. And there are kind of two areas I want to address that this affects. One, it addresses individual Christians, and two, it affects whole churches. In the Corinthian context, Paul is writing to a group of believers called the church. So both are in view here. We look again at verse 18. Let's talk about individual believers first. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. He's got individuals in mind here first. We should measure ourselves and each other by the correct standard. Am I, talking if we're, if we're looking in at ourselves, and or is he or she, looking at others, living to receive the Lord's approval? That is the question. Is he, am I, or is he living to receive the Lord's approval? And then how do we know what the Lord approves? We look to his word. He has told us what is right, what is good. Micah puts it this way. He has told you, O man, what uh, the Lord requires. To do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. The standard that the Lord uses to commend, the standard that the Lord uses to measure is right here. Here's the tape measure, as it were. The world, or excuse me, this is our standard, not worldly standard. The word, it is the word that rightly divides, that pierces through bone and marrow. And it comes from the one who sees the heart and not merely the exterior. You remember the story uh, of David's anointing? What does the Lord tell Samuel, the prophet, before he goes? Do not consider his outward appearance. The Lord does not look only for man sees only the exterior, only sees the outside, but the Lord sees the heart. This is one reason why God's standard is better, why God's measurement is better than the standard of the world, than measuring ourselves or the church by the world. God's standard is better because it comes from one who is higher than us. Paul finds it ridiculous that these critics are measuring themselves by one another. That's, that's, one of his, that's one of the things that he spends the most time criticizing. And it's pretty sarcastic as you read it. It was like, really? You're comparing yourselves to one another. That's your standard. That's the best you can come up with. Paul finds that ridiculous. What does one human being have over another? Aren't we all sinful? Aren't we all broken? Isn't that plainly obvious to everyone? Why do we compare ourselves to one another? Why do we think that is the final standard? God's standard is better. God's measurement is better because he is higher and greater than us. 
His standard is better because it comes from one who is holy and righteous. Again, why measure yourself by another man who's just as sinful as you? It is also better because it is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so is his law. Here's a funny thing about human standards, and we're starting to see this more and more in our world and in our culture. The goalpost keeps moving. Just ask J.K. Rowling. A couple years ago, let's say maybe about 10 years ago, J.K. Rowling, if you're not familiar, the famous author of the Harry Potter book series, I think the, I may have this wrong, but I think the first author to ever become a billionaire simply by book sales alone, pretty great. Not, she's not doing too bad for herself by that standard, which, as I'm saying right now, doesn't actually mean that much. Um, Ten years ago, J.K. Rowling was loved by the culture, by the culture at large. New York Times, CNN, they all loved her. Partially because she was all on board for L, G, and B. No problem with that. Homosexual marriage, not a problem. She's all for it. But then T came along. And Rowling is one of these crazy old school people who thinks that things like women's sports should be limited to women. Guess what? Culture doesn't like that anymore. So much so that uh, a recent uh, video game or the Harry Potter series just came out. And the people who made the game made absolutely certain that the public knew Rowling had nothing to do with it. She's out. The goalpost moved. Their measurement of what is good and right and approved has changed. And she doesn't measure up anymore. If we measure ourselves by the world, the same thing may happen to us. God's standard, his measurement is better because it doesn't change. The world's standards give no assurance. If you seek the approval of the world, you are not on solid ground. Only on Christ, the solid rock, can you stand. The law, the measurement of God, demands perfect obedience. Believe in Christ, trust in Christ for salvation, because only he can be perfect in your place. There is the solid ground. Only a building constructed with good measurements, with an accurate tape measure, can stand. Only a person approved by Christ's perfection will stand on the last day. That's how it affects individuals. How does this affect the church as a whole? The world's standards are the wrong measurement here too. So these critics in Corinth, these critics of Paul, they think that churches are successful, they are approved if they have dynamic Powerful sermons that sound like the Greek rhetoric and it sound like they're speaking, they, they measure up as they're comparing themselves. If there's dynamic, powerful sermons and speakers, if the leaders are, and the congregants, the people, are strong and attractive and impressive and, by implication, wealthy, 
And if the focus is on staying put, being comfortable and taking care of who and what is already here. Build, in other words, these critics are all about building a church that looks and sounds good, attracts a lot of people, and is only concerned with investing in itself. Sounds a lot like the standards of the world. There's an example of this kind of more in a broad uh, denominational sense. The Presbyterian Church USA, I know I, uh, there's a lot of Presbyterian denominations, even in America, and it can get a little bit confusing with the alphabet soup. I know I'm a Baptist, and we've got our own set of alphabet soups, and that's confusing in and of itself. So there's the PCUSA. A couple years ago, they approached the hymn writers, Keith Getty and, um, I'm blanking on his first name, Townsend, and asked if they could change the lyrics to the song, In Christ Alone. You know the song, we sing it here pretty frequently. What they wanted to change was the lyrics about Father, about God revealing himself as Father. By the standards of the world, that's not good enough anymore. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta be inclusive. So, even though the Bible actually reveals God describing himself as Father, and that's a whole discussion about what that means, and it's important, and there's a reason that it is there, and it's correct and good. But even though God, that's how God reveals himself, it was like, no, we, we gotta we got suppress that, we gotta get rid of that. It's like, we, we got to be inclusive. That's the goal, that's the measurement, the standard of the world. So they approach Townend and Getty, and they ask, hey, can we change the lyrics? Simply because they want to attract more people, and they want the approval of the world. This is not a standard of worship that comes from Christ's law and God's word. Much to Townsend and Getty's credit, they said no. And some Presbyterian churches decided to do it anyway, and that's called copyright infringement, and that tells you all you need to know about their character. If Christ's approval, or excuse me, if man's approval is the goal, then you can chuck faithfulness out the window, chuck faithfulness to Scripture, and change the lyrics. You'll bring in more people. The culture will pat you on the back. But if Christ's approval is the goal, stay faithful to his word. Make disciples, even if they aren't very skilled, wealthy, or dynamic. Teach them to obey all that Christ commanded, even if some say that we're teaching hate. Go to all tribes, tongues, and nations. Don't just sit here and enjoy what you have. Go, even if some say we're wasting our time, money, and energy. So here we are. Paul's critics, they use the wrong, worldly, man-made measurement to assess him as a Christian and as a church leader. We should not do this with ourselves, each other, or the church. We do not boast in the things or the standards of this world. The correct measure of our success and Paul's is Christ's approval. Our faithfulness to the standards in this word decides our success or failure. 
We must seek to love the Lord our God with all we have and love our neighbors as ourselves. There's a hymn, what they call a modern hymn, also happens to be written by Keith Getty uh, and his wife, Kristen. Um, this is a hymn that I have really fallen in love with in the last year. Um, it is a strong reminder to me as a pastor of where my worth is really found. Um, the hymn is called, My Worth is Not in What I Own. I'm going to conclude by reading the verses of this hymn and, um, and the chorus and then pray. But let me just encourage you. This is kind of a good distillation of, I think, what Paul is trying to say in this sermon. So let me encourage you to, to find this song. There's a few different renditions of it on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever you use, and I'm sure you can find a CD of it somewhere if that's the thing. Um, meditate on that. Listen to this song this week. I think it will serve you well and remind you of what Paul's trying to say here. So here it is. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose. That's a big one with kids right now, for the record. As a student pastor, there is so much obsession with... um, Awards being received and making the teams, not making the teams, being advan- advancing in the tournaments, getting starting spots, whatever, okay? All right, soapbox getting off. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. But life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light. I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. But my value is fixed. My ransom is paid at the cross. Sorry. I told you this song meant something to me. Here's the chorus. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him and no other. My soul is satisfied and approved in him alone. May it be so with me. May it be so with you. May it be so in the church. Until the Lord comes. Let's pray.
Lord, we come before you and we rejoice. Those of us in this room who have tasted and seen that you are good, we rejoice. We boast in the salvation that we have in Christ. It is your work that commends us. In your work, we are approved and we find rest. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to measure ourselves by the right standard. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.